three picks, all three to Rex Burkhead, which I played with him in Cincinnati a few years later, and he reminded me of that. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't very fun. <laughs> uh, so if you're gonna screw you high school kids, if you plan on having a bad day, don't have it against one of your future teammates. Uh, that's that's a piece of <laughs> advice that I would give you. This podcast is presented by Visa, a network giving small businesses tools to grow, overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small business lead their teams to victory all year long. Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help grow their businesses and help them achieve even greater success. Because the more people we can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network giving small businesses tools to grow. Welcome back to Beyond the X's and O's. Today we sit down with Greg McElroy, and I love this one because, you know, I'm in high school football right now. I love the Friday Night Lights conversations. And uh, Greg talks about going to South Lake Carroll back in the day when they were building a legendary program and what Friday Night Lights is like in Texas. Uh, having to wait till his senior year to be the starter. Well, when you're playing behind Chase Daniel, it makes sense. He plays for the legendary coach, Todd Dodge, who's now at Westlake. Uh, in Austin, Texas, a guy that I admire a lot. Um, talking about winning the state championship, his first year starting, 16-0, and 0, man. Uh, what an incredible experience. Uh, why he chose the University of Alabama. The value of scout team reps. Now, I can say it all I want, and you're not going to believe it. But when you get to hear these other guys talk about what he learned uh, working on the scout team uh, is pretty remarkable. Uh, the value of lonely work. You know, one of the things when you play at the University of Alabama, you're trying to win a a quarterback competition. It's not just what you do at practice. It's what you do when nobody's watching. And, and Greg talks about that. Uh, his journey in Alabama, the great players he played with, and then this thread, him versus Tim Tebow. And it's it's not just the games you're thinking of. It goes deeper than that, and he gets into that conversation. Uh, his time on TV, um, I mean, he is killing it on TV. Uh, and, and I think a lot of that's the lessons he learned uh, playing football. So really a rich conversation with Greg McElroy. I'm really looking forward to you getting to join us on the, in this. Well, excited to have Greg McElroy on today. I'm really excited about this episode because he has a pretty incredible high school uh, football experience. Uh, we've had a lot of guys on. A lot of them have big-time high school football experiences, but not quite as big as Greg McElroy. So, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. I, when you say big, yes, well – the high school I went to is big. Our tradition is big. I yes. would say that I was a very small sliver of what was a very big tradition. So my high school story, probably a little different. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of guys that are listening that can relate to what I'm going to tell them about what my experience was like in high school. Well, let's jump right into it. I'll set, I'll just set the context. You grew up in California. Your dad gets a job with the Cowboys. So you moved to the Dallas area. Uh, what were you, 10, 11 years old? Is that correct? I was 10 and I was a baseball player uh, at that point. I, football was, I didn't want to say it was a foreign concept because I still played in California. And that was probably the best thing for me because in California, I played for a team called the Chatsworth Chiefs. And I wasn't the biggest guy in the world. Uh, and it also taught me how to play against guys that were much faster, much bigger, much tougher than me. So my football roots started in California 
but I hated it. <laughs> I loved it and I hated it at the same time because I just got beat up every time I went to practice. So it was, uh, I had a coach called Alan, named Alan Adams. I'll never forget it. Uh, he got in a fight with a parent after the game. Like it was wild, but it was a great learning experience because I was the worst player on the team. And for me to be the worst player on the team was fantastic for my long-term development and want to, I guess, in the sport. Well, that's a great point. I mean, you got to have the want to. So many kids are playing because daddy wants them to play or mommy wants them to play, but it doesn't work unless you have the want to, the stick to itness, the perseverance. And you're, you were going to need it getting into the South Lake Carroll pipeline. And for those of you who don't understand, there is big time high school football all over the country. However, uh, somebody that lived in Texas for a couple of years, you can't understand it until you're around Texas 6A <laughs> football at the highest level. You can't understand. Um, the depth of it, the pageantry of it, the pressure of it. And here you go. You moved, you moved to Texas. You're in the South Lake pipeline. Coach Dodge, who's now at Westlake in Austin, was the head coach there. Uh, and here you are getting ready to enter into high school to play for this great South Lake Carroll high school football team. Talk to me about what that was like. Well, it's funny because when we moved there, it was 1998. South Lake at the time was mostly cow pastures, and it was very, very flat. It was really better known for being Circle T Ranch, which was owned by Ross Perot, and he'd sold that off. And South Lake was essentially rolling hills, I guess Texas versions of rolling hills, uh, and a population of about 20,000. So it wasn't a very big community. At the time, we were 4A, uh, and we really weren't that good. We ran the triple option when we moved there in 1998. And that, knowing my skill set, Trent, uh, would not have been a great fit. Um, fortunately enough for me, a couple years after when I got into seventh grade, coach Rapp was let go in comes Todd Dodge and he's charged with kind of invigorating the offense, invigorating the program and basically putting his own fingerprints on it. The first quarterback he had was a guy named Ricky Lay. He was more of a runner, more in line with the triple option. So they did more run based stuff. I was in seventh grade at the time. So it was great for me because I was kind of running around and I was rotating, playing offense and defense and all kinds of other stuff, but I was rotating a quarterback and I didn't play very much to begin with, but little I did play, it wasn't great. Uh, eighth grade, they started more, moving more towards the spread offense that South Lake eventually became. Ricky Lay ends up going to army. And uh, I was battling with a guy named Chad Joyce. Why do I remember all these names? Cause I'm a psychopath. Uh, and I was rotating every other series with Chad Joyce in the eighth grade, which made me want it even more. Ninth grade, 2002 was the season. Chase Watson was the quarterback, and they revert almost entirely to a pass-first approach. And the transition from the triple option to the spread had become a finished product. Southlake went on to win the state championship their first year in 5A that year the first program ever to make the jump from 4A to 5A and win the state championship in the first year. I was in ninth grade rotating with a guy named Jordan Zier. If you're catching a theme, it's for good reason. Uh, it's because I was rotating my whole career. And actually in ninth grade, I was the second guy off the bench. Jordan Zier started every game. I was the backup and I played the third and fourth series. I also played the sixth and seventh series, whatever. He did too, I did too, he did too, I did too. Uh, and that was the way that went. Um, the second year in 2003, Chase Daniel took over as the starting quarterback, went on to become the starter. 
And he obviously went on after a great career in high school to go play at Missouri. Um, I backed him up starting my junior year. And then my senior year, I finally got the chance to be the starting quarterback and route uh, to a 16-0 state championship, the third out of four for Coach Dodd Dodge. And, you know, what was a pretty up-and-down high school career for me that started with me in a rotational role inevitably left, you know, I left high school as – the guy that had more passing touchdowns ever than any quarterback in one season in 5A Texas high school football history and a lot of records and, and passing records along the way. So let's dig in that a little bit. You did a great job of summing up the high school career, but there's a lot of meat left on that bone because, <laughs> you know, in today's football, very, 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 very few quarterbacks would stick it out rotating. Uh, and then you think your time's coming and Chase Daniel gets the starting job and he, you have to sit on the bench and watch him. Talk to him about the lessons learned with disappointment and adversity and having to be a good teammate and not being the starter, knowing you're good enough, but you're not getting the playing time. Like dive into that, really everything up until your senior year, then we'll let you talk a little bit more about that great senior year after you talk about the adverse first three years. You know, what's funny, Trent, is it was the best thing in the world for me. I didn't know it at the time, and it ticked me off, but it made me hyper-competitive, and it also taught me how to work when no one else was watching, um, mm. And which is crazy to me, too, because the reason why nobody else was watching is because I was sneaking around behind the other quarterbacks back in order to get extra reps. I didn't want yeah. anyone watching because I wanted to get better and no one else know that I was getting better, which is kind of messed up. But <laughs> at the same time, I had to do what it took to inevitably win the job. And I was, I remember in ninth grade and my coach, uh, his name was Eli Melton at the time. It's like, I'm telling you, it's every one of these people had a huge impact on the player I eventually became because I used it as fuel. Eli Melton called me into his office at the end of fall camp in ninth grade and said, Greg, right now we have two good quarterbacks. We like both you and Jordan Zier. We think you're both excellent. Uh, we think both of you can have a real positive impact on the team, but he's better than you right now, so he's going to start. And I remember that being, I was mad. And yeah. I remember that being something that, that I wasn't going to let go of. And Jordan, was he better than me at that point? Maybe. I didn't think so. But clearly Coach Melton thought so. It's fine. I just put my head down and I said, that's fine. If he's better than me now, that's he can have today. But I can tell you what's coming is I'm going to have tomorrow. I'm going to have the next day. I'm going to have the day after that. And by week 10, when we're competing every day in practice, which we did, I'm going to be the starting quarterback. Now, ultimately, I think it got to the point at the end of the year where I was maybe taking the first two series and he was taking the second two and we were rotating. I don't recall exactly how it all went down. But being told I wasn't the best one on day one was exactly what I needed to kind of put my head down and, and to realize I have work to do. And, and it was great for me. Moving forward into my next year, Jordan Zier was still very much in the picture. There were two JVs. <clears throat> there was one, JV Black, which was the lower level of the two. JV Green, which was the upper level of the two. JV Green, it was basically juniors. 
what juniors didn't make the varsity and a few sophomores that were called up. Well, I was the first quarterback on JV Black. I was the starting quarterback on JV Black, which was basically the sophomore JV team, the lower level JV team. But every week I switched up and Jordan switched down. He started on green, went back down to black. I started on green, uh, black, went up to green. Well, by the end of the year, not only had I become the permanent quarterback on green, but I actually was called up to varsity at the end of the regular season because I had just worked so hard and had played so well throughout the course of the first few games of the season. And when I got called up to varsity and was running the scout team reps for the varsity team that went on to lose in the state championship game to the Katy Tigers, that's when I started to realize I can do this. Yeah. Because it was at that point playing against guys that I deemed as grown men. You know, I was 15, they were 18 and I was getting hit. There was no red Jersey. Like I'm running option. I'm getting hit. Ben Hicks in the middle linebacker made my life hell every day, but (laughs) it made me tougher and it made me better. And when we chopped them up, which we inevitably did, it made me realize that I belong. And I got really confident as a result of that because they didn't go easy on me. They didn't take practices off. I had to bring it every day because I knew if I didn't bring it, I was going to get hit. So it was the most valuable season for me as a sophomore in high school. The light went on. I started to believe. And when I was getting reps as a scout team quarterback against the varsity, that's when I started to think, man, I might be able to do this for real. That's awesome. So there's a couple of things I really want to go backwards on and make sure if you're a young quarterback, young player, you heard him say, number one, doing the hard work when nobody's watching. You know, we call it the lonely work. Um, these days, everybody wants to celebrate working hard on Instagram or Twitter. I'm like, that that's that should be understood that you're working hard if you want it. But the guys that go and do the stuff that nobody sees, it doesn't get celebrated regardless of intention or motivation. Like you said, those are the guys that make it. Um, and the other thing you said that I think is really important, I think dads can hear this one, is you didn't know it was going to be the best thing for you at the time, but it ends up being the best thing for you. I think so many people are willing to go find an easier route. Mom and dad move them to have an easier route instead of understanding that the hard route, the road less traveled, is going to be the road that leads you to ultimate su- success. So thanks for sharing that part of it. I, I'm Trent, I, it was so bad to the fact that I didn't even invite receivers to come catch balls for me Yeah. because I didn't want Jordan to get word that I was getting extra work in. I didn't want Zane, the other guy who was on the JV to know I was getting extra work in. I took a bag of balls, 20 balls, and I put the nets up on all of our quick game routes, on all of our three-step routes, all of our middle routes, and I would throw 20 balls. And I would go, I'd walk over there, take the bag over there, fill the bag back up, come back, throw 20 again to the different route over and over every day to the point where it was like, it was monotonous, but I became a rhythmic passer and knew how to throw to throw to areas as opposed to individual players. And I thought that made me actually so much better because I was throwing directly to a spot. Whereas I felt like in high school, if you threw it at a receiver and he caught it, whether he was in stride or not, completion's a good play. No, that wasn't that wasn't the nope. case. Like if I missed the square, that was an inaccurate throw in my eyes, and that made me a, a, a lot better a, as a result of that work. But it was ultimately because I was a competitor. I didn't want anyone else to find out I was doing it, 
and to know that they can get on my level by doing the same thing. Romo once told me a really interesting story about growing up in Illinois and the weather being bad and him competing against a guy. And he found the only way he could gain an advantage was he would go down to his basement and there was this old, you know, janky couch that was in the base basement <laughs> and he could get about 12 yards away from it. And he would just feel the ball coming off his finger and learn how to spin it in such a way it would stick between the two back pads. And it had to be spinning a certain way just to stick between the two the two back pads and he, he same thing. He said, you know, because now I had feedback right away, right. Uh, a receiver couldn't make me feel good about the throw. Like that thing had to be exactly in the crack. It had to be spinning exactly the right way for it to stick there. And he would do it for hours upon hours and the young quarterbacks, you got to understand all of us that have made it. Uh, it's not necessarily the talent. It's right. our ability <laughs> to do the monotonous, boring, lonely stuff. That isn't glamorous while you're playing video games and while you're taking the girl out to ice cream and while you're doing all that fun stuff these days, while you're taking all these glamorous trips to colleges so you can post it on your Instagram, the guys that are making it are sitting in their basement on their knees and they have a, a bag of balls of 20 and they're throwing into nets. I and mean, those are the guys that are going to make it and win national championships and play in the NFL and win Super Bowl. So thanks for sharing that part of it. Now, what I wanted to get to, and I think this is a really important part, is I, I get that that time South Lake. 5A, but it was still the big, big, big time. It was Texas Friday Night Lights. Everybody's watched Friday Night Lights. You've lived it. What is the extra that goes on with playing in Friday Night Football in Texas? Well, I think, I think it's a, it, it really is. And I, you know, I didn't know any better, right? I mean, I, it was, it was where I grew up. It was what I did. I thought everywhere was like that until I got to school, and then we went and saw the big you know, high schools in Birmingham or the big high schools in Mobile or wherever it might've been. I'm like, where is everybody? <laughs> what do you mean? What, what do you mean? There's not 40 K here where I go. This is, I mean, this is ridiculous. Um, I'll never forget it. Uh, we were playing Plano. It was the regional final. So it was the fourth round of the playoffs and we were playing Plano. There were 40,000 people there. The entire bottom section of Texas Stadium, where the Cowboys used to play, full. Half the top section full. It seated 55. So we were three-quarters of the way there when we played Plano. We played Abilene the week before. Rex Burkhead, by the way, was on that Plano team and picked me off three times. It, like, in that game, threw three picks, all three to Rex Burkhead which I played with him in Cincinnati a few years later. And he reminded me of that. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't very fun. <laughs> uh, so if you're going to screw up you high school kids, if you plan on having a bad day, don't have it against one of your future teammates. Uh, that's, that's a piece <laughs> of advice that I would give you. Uh, we played Taylor Potts and the Abilene team. They were 13 and zero. we played them at Baylor stadium. Baylor was, I don't recall the name of the old stadium, not McLean, the old stadium. It was full Baylor full and they said that that stadium they hadn't had a crowd that big all year and it was third week of the playoffs for a texas high school football game now baylor at the time not great uh baylor now obviously excellent so a little different baylor team but it it's it's on another level trent and i think what's amazing about it i guess i i just never realized how see for us uh, every game, and I, I talk about this with college coaches all the time, 
every game for us was life or death. If we lost, which we did only one time in four years, I, I thought everyone, I thought we were going to die. I mean, it was literally like, this is the worst thing that has ever happened in my life. Like, I, I mean, it was, it was the most devastating thing in the world. And I know not every program, every high school kid is going to come from a program that wins every week. But I just took a little bit of winning for granted and how hard it is to be a part of something where everyone on the team is going to give their very best every single day. And you didn't even have to, it was, it was like, it was expected. Um, and that wasn't the case. And, and I think that that was something for me coming from Southlake and coming from Texas high school football, everyone put everything they had into every single game. And that's probably what I appreciate most about having played it is the pressure and the expectations to win force you to become your very best. And that can be a blessing and a curse because I think a lot of guys peak early in Texas high school football. They get to the best that they can be and they never get better because they accelerate the development in some ways by the amount of resources we put into high school football at that level. But the coaching's incredible, the players are incredible the fan base support, the commitment to excellence. We had an indoor facility at our high school that the Dallas Cowboys used when it was raining. That's how nice our facilities were. So it was a pretty special place to play high school football. And, and I think it's what led to eventually my college decision going somewhere where it mattered more than it did in high school <laughs> because yeah. it was going to be hard to go down in regards to fan interest from where we were at Southlake. Well, you must know how to do TV because when we get back from this break, we're going to talk about your recruiting process and the college you ultimately choose. We'll be right back with Greg McElroy. It's football season, baby, and you know what that means. It means we're going for two here with the sponsors of today's show. Manscaped. Blitzing through hairs has never been easier, and it's time you join the two million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by using code DIMES at manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping. It's three and out the window with all other trimmers. Now go tame that wildcat offense. The world is starting to open and the performance package 4.0 for Manscaped is here to help you get ready. Inside you'll find their brand new lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, weed whacker ear and nose hair trimmer, boy do I need that, crop reviver toner, plus two free gifts, performance boxer briefs, and the Shed Travel Bag. The Performance Package 4.0 from Manscaped is the perfect package for your package and a key for a great grooming and hygiene routine to make sure the boys downstairs are smooth like Tom Brady in the fourth quarter. The brand new Lawnmower 4.0 is here to take your defense to the next level. This fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor. A new multi-function on-off switch can engage a travel lock and gives you the ability to turn the 4000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. Did I mention this trimmer is waterproof too? Rain, snow, or sleet are no match for the waterproof power of the 4.0. This package also comes with the Weed Whacker, this elite nose and ear hair trimmer. 
is also waterproof and uses a 9,000 RPM motor powered 360 degree rotary dual blade system. This trimmer also has a proprietary skin safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code DIMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code DIMES. All right. Well, you teased us at the end before the break. Uh, you wanted to choose a college that was football was even more important than, than it was in high school, which is there's probably at the time five in the whole country where it's more important than South Lake Carroll <laughs> High School. Uh, now, real quick to go back so you can talk about that senior year again, historic senior season, in South Lake Carroll, 16-0 state championship. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's 56 touchdowns, seven interceptions, something like that. I think it was 56 and nine, but seven sounds better. We can go with that. Okay, we'll go 56 <laughs> and seven. Yep, perfect, 56 and seven. Uh, state championship. Now, you commit to Texas Tech early on. Is that correct? I did, yes. And then you flip to Alabama. Take us through. You don't have to get into the whole recruiting process, but what made you originally choose Texas Tech and then ultimately flip to Bama? You know, what's funny is I was – before I ever started the game, and I think a lot of guys now, not a lot, I mean, but some guys, a handful of guys now are kind of experienced because the recruiting process is happening much earlier now. Um, I actually had double-digit scholarship offers, probably 10 or 12, before I ever started the game because people would come watch Chase and they'd say, dang, that, that backup, that backup, he looks the part more than Chase. It's like, real quick, let me brag on our program here real quick. We have three. Our <laughs> starter is as good as yeah. anybody just committed to Cincinnati, and both our backups have offers because the same thing. They come to watch our starter, and they say our backups, and we have backups with SEC offers. So I know what you're talking about. Well, it's funny because I, uh, Coach Munkin, he's the OC at Georgia. We were just doing his game a yep. couple weeks ago, and I was going through the process of getting recruited. Um, he was at Oklahoma State. And Oklahoma State came down and watched Chase. And it was Coach Gundy, who was the OC at the time. Um, Coach Munkin, who I, I don't recall what he – but maybe receivers, quarterbacks, I don't recall. It doesn't matter. Coach Gundy and, and Coach Munkin were basically in charge of the recruitment of whatever the quarterback was going to be that year. Um, and Les Miles was the head coach. And they come down, they look at Chase, they're like, oh, we can't. I don't know, he's 5'10", 220. I don't think we can take him. Like, there's no way we can take this guy. Like, he just, he looks like a fire hydrant. Like, he's, he's a great he player. Does. He still does. His, his tape is great. He's a great player, but we can't take this guy. But the backup, he's 6'2", 190. Like, I like the backup. So, we'll offer the backup, but we're not offering the starter. So, I have the Oklahoma State offer, and Chase doesn't. He's the starter on the back. I'm like, how does that even make sense? It doesn't. It's ludicrous. Um, but long story short, it's just at that time, it was a different world because you had to be six, two, you had to be yep. a certain, you had to check the measurable boxes. If you're going to be a division one guy or a power five guy, you had to be this and this and this and this. And if you did all that, then boom, you get offers. Well, I got offers based on measurables and practice. Um, I had probably 10 to 12 offers before I ever started the game. By the time I got through with my senior year, I was a lot of programs fallback plan. Uh, so when one guy, if their main guy or a handful of main guys that they were recruiting, if they ended up going elsewhere, yeah, Greg, we'll give you a call. And that, that was fine by me. 
Like, I, guess what? There were going to be some schools that were my fallback plan too. So I was fine using them. If they wanted to use me, perfect. As long as I end up where I want to go, it didn't bother me. Um, Texas Tech at the time had Mike Leach. We're throwing it all over the lot. System that was real similar to what we ran at Southlake. Obviously, statistically speaking, I was going to have a bunch of big numbers if given the opportunity to go there. And they were really the first major school at the time that was ranked in the top 25 that was recruiting me. So I committed there. It was my best offer at the time. I didn't really go into it in anticipation of changing my commitment, but my head coach, Todd Dodge, kind of pressured me. He, uh, I think he had good intentions, but he, he basically said, hey, Greg, you know, we'd really like for you to focus on, on us, and we don't really want you taking visits during the season. So you know, I, I think it'd be best for you and best for us if you were to commit. And looking back at it, I think it was the right decision. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. As a head coach, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, this past weekend yeah. after our quarterfinal game, we win, and I got nine guys at Alabama and Ohio right. State. And and I don't mind it, but it definitely is like – it gives me pause at night when I go to sleep. <laughs> I'm right. like, are they going to get back? Are they going to get sick? Are they going to be worn out? Where are their minds going to be? We got the state sure. semis coming up. So I totally understand that side from the coaches that want you to commit before the, this really before like the second half of the season, the playoff run uh, <laughs> and keep your focus on your team that you're married to at the time. Yeah. I mean, I committed after week four and, and honestly, looking back at it, it was probably the right call. Um, Cause I was able to basically bury the recruitment until after the season, I did tell Mike Leach and I told Texas Tech at the time, as funny as it is, the guys that were recruiting me on that Texas Tech team, uh, Dana Holgerson, Lincoln Riley, and Mike Leach. <laughs> the yeah. three guys that Pretty I was, good staff. Right. It was a ridiculous staff. Sonny Dykes, uh, also nope. one of the guys that was, that was in charge of my recruitment. I had lunch with Sonny Dykes uh, the week before I committed. So, I mean, it's just... It was um, a really good staff and, and obviously a really cool offense. So at the time, it was my best offer. I committed. I did tell him, I said, hey, I'm going to reevaluate things at the end. As long as you understand, I still want to take my visits in January, and then I'll come to a conclusion pretty soon after that. Well, I get through the season, and a lot of guys start going elsewhere. And the place that I really wanted to go that had kind of stayed on me throughout the course of it, and they were recruiting one guy at the time. His name was Tim Tebow. Uh, he decided to commit to Florida, which opened up the opportunity for me to go to Alabama, which starts a long line of competitiveness between Tim Tebow and myself. Um, yes, it does. So Tim, I already didn't like him in high school because I wanted to go to Alabama from the very beginning. And Alabama said, we're recruiting Tebow. If he decides to go elsewhere, you will be the next in line to get an offer. Said, all right, I get that. That's fine. I don't know Tim from Adam, but fine. <laughs> all right. Tim decides. To, I hate him. I, I hate, hate him. I hate I'm going to beat him. I don't care. All right. <laughs> fine. Um, offer him. You're going to pay the price. If I get the chance to play you and Tim's there, I'm going to kick your butt. All right. So that's yes. the way I looked at it. But in all seriousness, looked back at things, had probably 35 offers at the end of it which at the time was a lot. I mean, kind of looking back at it, but I had offers from yeah. all over the map. I mean, Fresno, Toledo, Hawaii. My dad played at Hawaii. I mean, offers from like you know, the most random schools. It's the most random collection of offers ever. Um, 
because I didn't really have any preferences. I didn't really have any, any leans, just kind of reassessing everything at the end of it. So my final trips came down to North Carolina, Ole Miss, Alabama, took an unofficial to Tennessee, and then Colorado. Those were kind of the last few. I had already been on an unofficial to Stanford, which was in the midst of kind of an unusual deal. They had Walt Harris was the head coach there. And it was, I, I just wasn't sure about the fit there, but that was kind of my dream school um, at the time. But I didn't like yeah. the football fit for me with the direction that they were heading. So they were kind of in the mix, but not really in the mix. Took my visit to Colorado, uh, liked it, wasn't the right fit. Took my visit to Ole Miss, realized I loved the SEC. Took my visit to Tennessee, didn't love what they were planning to do from an offensive perspective. And then Alabama took my visit there and they threw the ball 15 times a game. And it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. Brody Croyle was the starting quarterback. And they told me basically they sold me on tradition and they sold me on. If you do something special here, you'll be remembered forever. And we haven't won in a really long time, but we think we can. We think we have the pieces, we have the commitment, and we just won the Cotton Bowl. We're just coming off sanctions. Everything for Alabama is arrow pointing up, and I knew that was what I wanted to be a part of. I wanted to be a part of the rebuild. I wanted to be a part of, of restoring a proud program and, and being a part of hopefully a cultural shift towards winning. And... I thought I'd be doing it under Mike Shula's leadership. <laughs> I didn't realize that there'd be a coaching change, but I, I really committed more to the school and into the program more so than the coaching staff. And that I think was probably the most beneficial thing in the world to me, because had it been to the coaching staff, my experience would have been completely different, but I committed to the place I'd most wanted to go to college, uh, which was Alabama. And ultimately Nick Saban coming in changed my life. That's huge. We, we just talked the other day about this exact thing about committing to a school that you would love, even if football was taken away from you. Uh, and it sounds like that's what you did. When we get back from our next break, we will talk about the Nick Saban transition to Alabama and then Greg's NFL and TV life. We'll be right back. Beyond the X's and O's is brought to you by State Farm. Just like State Farm offers surprisingly great rates for your car insurance, I want to share with you a surprisingly great moment from my career, and it came from Super Bowl 35, and it came actually when I was playing terribly. I started off the game brutal, couldn't hit anything, missed Brandon Stokely wide open on a crossing route, and Jabal Lewis in the flat. I didn't have enough energy. We're at a TV timeout, I'm sitting there in the huddle waiting for the play call to come in, and we substitute Sam Gash onto the field, and Sam Gash my favorite teammates of all time comes up to me, grabs me by the chest plate and says, we need your juice. We need your energy. You're not yourself today. I said, you know what? You're right. And immediately I had that spark. The hair in my arms stood up. And that was the series through the first touchdown to Brandon Stokely of Super Bowl 35. And that's why I love the journey of the quarterback. There's so many surprisingly great lessons to be learned from this unique position. And remember, whether you're a Super Bowl winning quarterback or an armchair QB relaxing happily at home, State Farm provides coverage that meets your needs at a price that fits your budget. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right. Well, you teased it at being a veteran TV savvy person like you are. Uh, you teased the Nick Saban 
years at Alabama. So you commit under Mike Shula. They changed to Nick Saban. Here's the big, I'll let you go wherever you want to go, but I do want to know the first time Nick came in and addressed the team, like what was that message? And then what was like, what were his core values taking over that program on turning that thing around and building what now is probably the greatest program in the history of college football, what he's built at Alabama. Trent, I mean, I'll be the first one to tell you it was miserable. I mean, everything about the transition was awful and, and coach wanted it to be that way. (laughs) It was, he he wanted to weed it out. I mean, I, I don't think he'd ever say that publicly, but he wanted everyone that couldn't handle it mentally to be gone. <laughs> and, uh, we had a lot of turnover there in year one. A lot of guys that just that just weren't into it. I being a young buck from a winning program, and I was lucky because most of our recruiting class either won and or contended for state championships in high school. So we had a lot of guys that knew what it took to win. And a lot of guys that would do whatever it took to win. So we had a really good class, albeit uh, maybe not the most ridiculously talented class, but a good class nonetheless. And coach basically came in and said, we're going to work harder than anybody. And for those of you that live to tell the tale, we're going to win. And you're either going to be with us or here's your bus ticket. Because if you're going to be dead weight, you're not going to, you're not going to enjoy your experience here. Just, just not going to be the case. So what does that look like? Get, give people an idea. Cause it's not just all pushing tires and mat drills and running Hills, right? There, there's a, right. a, uh, a emotional mental uh, drain on you. Correct. Uh, correct. Like attention to detail and how you handle your business away from football. So let people understand the toll more than just the physical toll. Well, I think a lot of there's a misconception um, about what that program's really like and what Nick Saban's really like, where he's all about football, he's all about football. But his whole message to us was, until you are a champion in life, you will never win a championship here. Like, you won't. Amen. And, and I think that's one thing that gets lost. And if you're not willing to do what it takes in the classroom, if you're not willing to do what it takes in study hall, if you're not willing to do what it takes in the in strength and conditioning program, you're never going to be successful. It doesn't matter how talented you are, how gifted you are. And if you don't do those little things, we'll, we'll replace you. I don't care how many stars you have. It does not matter. Um, and it creates an, a, a, we were competing about grades. I mean, like that's just what we did. We just competed in every possible way. To the point where, and he said, it, look, you're going to be a champion. You're going to be a champion leaving this program. And it might, you might not necessarily win a national championship. We hope that we do, but you might not. But you're going to learn how to do things the right way. And I think that was something that really mattered most to me in a sense that I had to attack the classroom. You have a point system. If you miss a, if you miss a class, three classes missed, you meet with the leadership council. Six classes missed, you miss a game. I mean, that's, that's serious when you're taking 15 hours a week and then they don't reset, by the way, like six is the, over the course of an entire semester, they reset at the end of the semester. So six classes when they're checking every class is a lot. I mean, you can do that accidentally by sleeping in, you miss six, you're missing a game. Simple as that. Uh, and it's really uncomfortable. I'd almost rather miss the game than go in front of the leadership council. Cause when you're going in front of the, a group of your own peers, uh, and you've let them down, 
And it creates a culture of accountability, Trent, that's just ridiculous. The best leaders on the team that we had were the players. Coach never had to come down on us. Very rarely did he have to come down on us. He, it was the last person I wanted to hear from in our locker room was Rolanda McClain. <laughs> or, you know, or Mike Johnson, our left guard, or, you know, anybody else. Coach was fine. That's a cakewalk. Walk into coach's office, he presses the garage door clicker, no problem. But when you're having to deal with your peers, that, that was always the most challenging thing. So he creates a culture of accountability and then practice. Some places play music. Some places are dancing. Some places are very loose at practice. Every day at practice was more intense than the game. We had 24 scripted plays, good on good, every day in 11 on 11. We had 24 scripted plays, seven on seven, good on good, every day. So every day when you're going against the likes of Mark Barron, Dre Kirkpatrick, Rolanda McClain, Dante Hightower, Javier Arenas, Kareem Jackson, they're, you know, the, the third corner off, off the bench was Marquise Johnson, who played three years on the league. I mean, when you're dealing with guys like that, and that's who you're having to go against every day, for 12 plays, you basically play a game every other week, an additional game on top of it against Alabama every other week. Uh, it was ridiculous. And couple that with the fact that every throw is charted. I knew my completion percentage for the season <laughs> dating back to routes on air. So it was, I mean, every play mattered and in, in it, it was charted and every rep mattered because you're going against someone really good. Um, so it created a culture of toughness and a culture of accountability and a culture of competition. Well, and it builds on your theme from Southlake. I mean, uh, you could see why he's recruiting guys and, and why you had a team full of people that competed for state championships. Because like you said, every practice at Southlake, every game was life or death. Now you're in a culture where every time you go to class, it's life or death, that you're getting a good grade, that every sprint's <laughs> life or death, that every practice is life or death. Every chart is thrown. The, the gravity of each moment makes Saturday afternoons a lot easier, correct? Yeah. And it just, it taught you that there's nothing that doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, I mean, every, if I'm throwing a slant, in uh, routes on air, the first throw of the day, and we always started with slants before hitches, which drove me freaking nuts. Uh, first throw of the day, I want to be a completion. I don't want to hit a moving target. Give me a hitch. But no, it wouldn't do it. It was a slant. <laughs> hitch is a take-for-granted throw. So first throw, routes on air, Marquise Mays, every day, uh, I had to hit a slant to a 5'8 wide receiver going 100 miles an hour. And it taught you that that rep, is equally as important as one of the reps that we're getting in seven on seven or 11 on 11, good versus good. Like every rep matters. And then you're ranked, by the way. Here's your completion percentage. Here's how many interceptions you threw. Here's how many throwaways you had. Here's how many sacks you took. I mean, every rep mattered. And here's the other thing. Seven on seven, right? Real easy, great quarterback-friendly, offense-friendly drill, right? Well, on Wednesdays, every week during the season, we did what we call nine-on-nine, nine, which was two defensive linemen against two offensive linemen working their two-on-two -two pass rush moves against us who are running seven-on-seven. Seven. So we had a real simulated pass rush where they're doing twists and stunts and crap, 
and you're hitting your hand on helmets. I mean, you're having to throw around people and seven on seven. Yep. You're just, you're constantly uncomfortable. And, and it was just, I didn't, I didn't, I thought everyone did it that way. I go to practice in some places. It's like, you know, I'm uh, honestly playing nine at the country club is more stressful. <laughs> and it, and it, and at our place, when I was in school, it was just, it was a war every day. And we played like it. We really did. We played like it. So we'll get into winning the national championship there, but I do want you to touch on something you, you kind of teased earlier, and that's this theme of competitiveness with Tim Tebow. So I'll just tee you up, Tim Tebow, go. Well, it's funny because I was the fallback option to Tim in, in high school. Yep. He chooses Florida. I choose Bama. We end up playing fast forward. I'm watching one of Heisman. You know, I'm watching him lead his team to a national championship as a third-year player redshirt sophomore, sophomore, junior, whatever he was, third-year player in 08. He was a, obviously a situational player in 06 when they won the national championship. So basically, before I even yep. before I even get a bite at the apple, he's got two national championships and a Heisman Trophy. His worst year, he won the Heisman. It's like, you know, how, is that, how is that even possible? So I'm like, gosh darn it, man. This guy is like the bane of my existence. Well, there we go. They're number one team in the country. Uh, I'm playing against them in 09. We're number two in the country. We're 12 and 0. They're 12 and 0. I get the chance to play against them in the SEC championship and just play out of my mind. Yep. Um, played really well. We end up winning the game rather convincingly. Um, Tim obviously has a storied career, an amazing career. They go on, they win the Sugar Bowl against Cincinnati. And then he goes on to be drafted in the first round. I have to wrap up my career. I get drafted. Uh, to the New York Jets in the seventh round of 2011 draft. He was 2010 draft to the Broncos. Well, I'm at the Jets about to be the backup. Mark Brunel's retiring. I'm going to step in. I'll be Mark's number two. Looking forward to it. It's great. Uh, Mark and I have a great relationship. Well, we trade for Tebow. <laughs> yeah, there he comes. Now he's in New York. And now we're having to compete in New York for the backup job and we're rotating one-on-one, you know, all the time. I get no reps in the preseason. They're getting Tim rolling. He, he's going to be the two, obviously. I mean, they've invested more in him than they did in me. So he's going to get more opportunities. It's fine. I get it. Well, I eventually am able to kind of get past him a little bit. I start, we get eliminated in the, from the playoffs on Monday night football in Nashville, short week. I get my first NFL start. I'm thrust into the lineup against the, freaking san diego chargers they sacked me 11 times i'm getting killed <laughs> it's like this is just brutal and then fast forward i'm we finish up our nfl careers i go to uh the sec network he's at the sec network now we're working on set together it's like we're we're attached at the hip but i do love tim and i actually am an appreciative of tim um as much as i hated him in high school I, I hated him in high school and I hated him my first three years of college. Once we finally got revenge, I obviously didn't, I didn't dislike him that much you know, anymore, but I always respected him and, and I always appreciated. He was kind of the white whale to me, like the, just the, the guy that I always thought about and was always kind of out in the distance, the, the rabbit that I was chasing, you know, you kind of have to have that. You got to kind of make yourself crazy enough. He was the guy I was always kind of chasing. And, and I think him being as good as he was made me want to be better. And as, as, many, as messed up as that may sound, um, 
you know, he made me better in a lot of ways. And, and I consider him a good friend. I got a ton of respect for him. Uh, I think he, you know, he's very passionate about what he does and, you know, getting to know him now in this media realm, you know, I'm, I'm even more grateful for the person he is too. So uh, I loved him and I'm, I'm a better player. I'm a better person as a result of having him to kind of chase throughout my career. So it doesn't mean we still can't get a little Tim Tebow voodoo doll made with one of his tight t-shirts <laughs> on the voodoo doll. And then when you're on set with him, like poke him with pins and see if it's no, affecting no. him at all. Or go like, this, go like this on the voodoo dolls now and see if, see if you can mess with this, mess with this boys or something. I don't know. But it was so funny. I was like, you got you to gotta have that person to chase though. Like you honestly kind of have to, like you got to find someone, you got to trick yourself. Or at least I did. I don't know if you were this way, Trent. Yeah. Like you got to trick yourself into like, Mm-hmm. disliking somebody to make yourself better and like to chase somebody. And I, I do that in every possible way. I mean, it's just, it's as mad as that is messed up as that may be. I guess that's, I guess that's my cross to bear. No, we tell every young quarterback, you got to find a way to always have an edge. So it's the same thing. You got to be edgy. Yeah, always. And then you got to be a legend in your own mind. Like you have to have that self-belief that you are a legend. Even after your fourth interception, you got to believe that next snap, you're going to do something miraculous. So I think we're all wired the same. See, now that's something I hit on. That's something that I really appreciate that you're trying to put into players because I did not have that. Um, that's like my biggest regret as a player. And I don't really talk about this like with a lot of people, but I think my upbringing and we just hit my story from the beginning, my upbringing of constantly being told I wasn't good enough, constantly being told I was going to be the backup, constantly being told, oh, well, you're not that talented. Oh, well, you're more cerebral than you are gifted. Yeah. Oh, well, you're this. Oh, well, you're that. It left and, and rooted just the tiniest bit of self-doubt in my head that I wish I would have never allowed to come to the forefront. And that's probably my, like, I don't have a ton of regret in my playing career, but when I was in practice, the Jets, and it didn't matter, and I was just balling, I was the best practice player going. Like, and I just didn't care. And I was like, I'm going to throw it come hell or high water. I'm going to squeeze it in that window. I'm going to let it rip early. I'm going to trust them and anticipate throws. It was carving up Cromartie and Revis and all these guys. I was playing my tail off. But as soon as it got into the real game, that little bit of disbelief after being told forever I wasn't good enough came a little bit too close to the forefront. And I, I just, that's my biggest regret. And I love that you're telling kids, you've got to be legendary. You've got to believe in yourself because if you don't believe in yourself, nobody else will. It's so true. It's so, so true. And the second you start to doubt yourself, the quicker things will begin to unravel. And I, I think that that's something that I'm glad that you're trying to tell the young guys. Well, let's talk a little bit about it. That's the great thing about podcasts. We don't have a producer in our ear saying, hey, you got a hard out in 30 seconds or rap, 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 <laughs> rap, rap. Uh, I'll give you my story there. So uh, I play, I was Jeff Tedford's first, first round quarterback. And we're playing, and there's only so many people that are old enough to remember this. We're playing Louisiana Tech in 1992 this is before they became finesse this is when they were big boy rough and tough football they had just allowed only seven points or 10 points to alabama a couple weeks before we played them and that's the year the alabama wins the national championship with curry and who was the other defensive end um copeland and curry yeah <laughs> yeah so this louisiana tech team was big physical they had a bunch of dudes playing the nfl they come out to fresno uh, they're trying to intimidate us by doing all this, you know, bulldog stuff. We're the bulldogs. We're the bulldogs. Jeff Tedford sits me down in the office. I'm a sophomore at the time. This is Thursday. 
And he says, I want you to know something. I, I'm hard on you. We work hard. I, I pick on every little thing you do. I'm trying to make you great. You're the best football player in America. I'm a sophomore. He goes, you're the very best of all positions. He goes, you need to play that way for us to beat this. We may not get a first down unless you're the best player in America. We go out, we smoke him 52-7. I throw five touchdowns. And he was always speaking like he was super hard on me. But he'd always speak life, speak legend into me. He would always speak confidence into me. And he did this for all his quarterbacks. You ask Aaron Rodgers and Achilles Smith and go down the list. And, and when you leave, Jeff, you go to the real war, world of quarterback coaches. And then you get all the negative. And I lost it somewhere there in my, in my, in my NFL career. And then uh, later on, I ended up having a conversation with Jeff. Midway through my career, I start getting it back. But then I get in this Elite 11 world and I meet Dr. Michael Gervais. And he teaches me, he teaches our staff, he teaches these kids that confidence is actually trainable. It's a skill that's trainable, and there's two aspects to it. It's doing hard things and speaking well to yourself while doing them. And that moment where he taught me that reminded me of Tedford and how he taught me, but now has transformed kids, coaches all over the country because we've had this message from Dr. Gervais. It's not like we came up with the science behind this, but you can actually create environments that are really, really hard, a la Nick Saban, right? Uh, what we do here. But then you speak life into them so to teach them how to speak well to themselves. So if you're lacking confidence out there, go find a giant mountain to climb and tell yourself you can do it. No matter what the circumstances are, tell yourself that peak is way up there and this is going to be brutal and this is going to take everything I have, but guess what? I can do it. And when I slip, I'm going to grab hold and say, no, I got this. And you start speaking well to yourself through doing hard things. And next thing you know, you'll be a legend in your own mind. And you'll have that confidence that Greg and I both just admitted we lost in our NFL careers at times. But you talk to the greatest that have ever done it, and they do hard things, and they speak well themselves while doing it. It's, it's kind of simple. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's such a valuable lesson, too, because it's the NFL in particular, and I guess college to a certain extent, but usually if you're talented enough, like you can, you can overcome yeah. obstacles in colleges. I mean, that's, there's no denying that, but the NFL, you can't just overcome it. Even the most talented guys in the world get washed out. It's just, sometimes it's where you end up. It's where you go. It's what circumstances you walk into. Josh Rosen's one of the most gifted throwers I've ever seen. The guy has had what five NFL teams in five years. I mean, just not, no problem. I mean, partly his doing, partly circumstance, but it's just talent doesn't matter. It's so much more than that. And I do think at the NFL level, it's so easy to lose sight of what got you to that point. And I think too, I was a little bit conditioned throughout the time at Alabama. Don't screw it up. 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 Like that. And that's every mistake you make is like 10 mistakes. You know, I'd rather have, I'd rather have zero interceptions than 10 touchdowns. I mean, I'd really would like, and that's, and that's, I wish I could have reset my brain after school to kind of just, it's okay to be risk averse. But also you have to have belief in yourself enough that if you want to take the chance, you can do it. And there's a delicate balance there that I think quarterbacks can often, I guess, run into a bit of a crossroads on. So I think when you think the way I was taught to think in college, where don't screw it up, don't screw it up, don't screw it up, 
that that's a that's not a good thought. That's not a good that's not a good mindset to have when playing this position. Like because this position has to be about you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, as opposed to don't mess it up, don't mess it up, don't mess it up. So I think being able to know sometimes it's don't mess it up, other times it's you can do it. You can be both, by the way, but being able to turn it on and off and flip that switch occasion based on what your team needs to be successful that day is, I think, a really valuable mindset that I would have loved to have been able to handle as a 22-year-old. That would have been really valuable to me, but I wasn't ready for that at that point. That was you know, 11 years ago, and I feel like I've matured greatly since that point. I think one way we've learned over time here, but the way we're trying to teach that now is you, before the ball is snapped, everything is about being an assassin. You are going to that line of scrimmage. You're looking up for the weakness in the defense. You're ultra confident. You're trying to throw a touchdown. Everything has that assassin's approach. And then once that ball is snapped, it is the discretion of a doctor. I think that's the way you do both. I wish I would have played that way. The, the great ones that I've studied, the great ones I've talked to, that's their mindset is as that, as they're going up there, as they're looking at the defense, when their hands are underneath the center's butt or they're in the shotgun, the very last thing is how do I ruin this defense? Right. And then the ball snapped and it is the discretion of a doctor. How can I make the best decision possible with the ball in my hand to help my football team? Um, something that sounds like we both wanted more of. I want to end this way, Greg. Uh, you you climbed the mountain like you did something that very few people done. You won a national championship uh, just as we finish here and you can go any way you want. But what was that feeling like leading up to the game in game than after the game? You know, what was what's so cool about it. Um, I, I wish a little bit. I wish I could have appreciated it more at the time. Um, at that point, Trent. If I'm going to be completely honest, I felt like all I did was what we were supposed to do, you know, and I think Nick Saban has a good, does a good job of not making it more than it is um, because our job was to win. We won. Good job. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of the thought process and why I think he's won so many because we didn't make it any bigger than we needed to. Um, as I've gotten removed from it, and I've seen great teams fall by the wayside and great teams not win it. I think I've just come to realize just how much more difficult it is to win than even I probably originally thought. Uh, and I think what, what it's also, what has also made it all the more special is it was the first one. And the first one isn't, I don't, I don't think the first one's the toughest one to win, but I think it's easily the one that is the most enjoyable to win. The toughest one, I think, is the next one <laughs> because yeah. it's always, you know, right in front of you. But I, I don't know. I, what I've enjoyed most about that team in particular, and I go back and we just had our 10-year reunion a couple of years ago, spending some time with the guys after we won it in 09. So everyone came back and it was before the Arkansas game and we were calling the Arkansas game. So it even made it that much neater, which was Mac Jones's first start. It's like, oh, really? Just a cool night. <laughs> All um, for all intents and purposes, but seeing all the guys that were on that team and some of them have gone on to have very lucrative NFL careers, but that's not the majority. Uh, the majority actually have gone on into the private sector and have found success. Some have gone into coaching and have found success, but I'll be damned if a vast majority of the guys that were on that roster have now gone on 
to do something and would consider themselves very successful in whatever it is, whatever path they've chosen. And there's something really neat about that and something really gratifying about that. And sometimes I'll go back and see some of the guys and they'll come around and, and I'll see them occasionally. They'll have one of their kids with them on a visit. And I'll be like, oh my gosh, you know, Milton or hey, Chavis, like what's going on, man? Like, good to see you. Uh, and they're all, some of them are head coaches at 30 years old. Some of them are, you know, ascending the ladder at their, at their job at, you know, 32 years old. And it's just, it's really neat because I think that group, because of what was expected of us and our buy-in and our collective team effort, there were as many three stars playing pivotal roles on that roster as there were five stars. Now the Alabama teams of today are all-star teams. Um, there's something very human about that 2009 roster and that we were able to ascend to the top of the mountain with some guys that many would consider to be average Joes. Mm. And we did it together. And some of the guys that made pivotal plays in that national championship game, Eric Anders, who's now gone on to become a very successful MMA fighter, was a three-star prospect, maybe a two-star prospect from Smithson Valley, Texas. Guy never played in the league, but he made a critical strip sack against Garrett Gilbert that led up, led us to the basically the nail on the coffin score inside the five. Javier Arenas was a two-star guy who had two offers, FIU and Bama. And he got Bama four days before signing day because Tyrone Prothrow broke his leg and he wasn't going to be back in time to return kicks. All they wanted him to do was return kicks and maybe just do it for a year. But Javier Arenas developed into a great nickel and played in the league for a few years and is now coaching uh, at Bama and is quickly ascending up the mountain of coaching. Um, but just the guys, Drew Davis, a three-star from Evergreen, Alabama, population 2,100. Uh, he's the right tackle. I mean, there was a handful of, uh, William Vallejos was five foot, 10 and a half center, who was my center, five, 10 and a half, 305. He looked like a beer keg. <laughs> is now the offensive line coach at Colorado. Uh, I mean, everyone has now kind of gone on to do really special things. And, and I think that's what I'm most proud of is that we weren't a bunch of divas. We weren't a bunch of five stars. We were just a bunch of guys that came together, worked really hard and reached the top of the college football world. So it's pretty special, man. It's really special looking back at it. What a perfect way to end this podcast. The, the show is called Beyond the X's and O's. And you just talked about all the things that go beyond the X's and O's, beyond the winning the national championship. I uh, appreciate your time, Greg. Incredible being with you and so happy for your success now on TV too. I happen to watch your game every single week. So uh, <laughs> thanks for spending time with us, buddy. Absolutely, man. Thanks again for having me, Trent. Appreciate you, buddy. Well, thanks again to Greg McElroy. What an awesome conversation. You can see why he's a superstar on TV. Uh, I got a ton out of that. And thanks again to our friends at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today.